Chapter Fourteen of Smith, Journalist by P. G. Wodehouse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Psuke Brea. Chapter Fourteen The Highfield. Far up at the other end of the island, on the banks of the Harlem River, there stands the old warehouse which modern progress has converted into the Highfield Athletic and Gymnastics Club. The imagination, stimulated by the title, conjures up a sort of national sporting club with pictures on the walls, padding on the chairs, and a sea of white shirt fronts from roof to floor. But the Highfield differs in some respects from this fancy picture. Indeed, it would be hard to find a respect in which it does not differ but these names are so misleading. The title, under which the Highfield used to be known until a few years back, was Swifty Bob's. It was a good, honest title. You knew what to expect, and if you attended seances at Swifty Bob's, you left your gold watch and your little savings at home. But a wave of anti-pugilistic feeling swept over the New York authorities. Promoters of boxing contests found themselves, to their acute disgust, raided by the police. The industry began to languish. People avoided places where at any moment the festivities might be marred by an inrush of large men in blue uniforms armed with locust sticks. And then some big-brained person suggested the club idea, which stands alone as an example of American dry humor. There are now no boxing contests in New York. Swifty Bob and his fellows would be shocked at the idea of such a thing. All that happens now is exhibition sparring bouts between members of the club. It is true that next day the papers very tactlessly report the friendly exhibition spar as if it had been quite a serious affair, but that is not the fault of Swifty Bob. Kid Brady, the chosen of Cozy Moments, was billed for a ten-round exhibition contest to be the main event of the evening's entertainment. No decisions are permitted at these clubs. Unless a regrettable accident occurs and one of the sparers is knocked out, the verdict is left to the newspapers the next day. It is not uncommon to find a man win easily in the world, draw in the American, and be badly beaten in the evening mail. The system leads to a certain amount of confusion, but it has the merit of offering consolation to the much-smitten warrior. The best method of getting to the high field is by the subway. To see the subway in its most characteristic mood, one must travel on it during the rush hour, when its patrons are packed into the carriages in one solid jam by muscular guards and policemen, shoving in a manner reminiscent of a rugby football scrum. When Smith and Billy entered it on the Friday evening, it was comparatively empty. All the seats were occupied, but only a few of the straps and hardly any of the space reserved by law for the conductor alone. Conversation on the subway is impossible. The ingenious gentleman who constructed it started with the object of making it noisy. Not ordinarily noisy, like a ton of coal falling on a sheet of tin, but really noisy. So they fashioned the pillars of thin steel, and the sleepers of thin wood, and loosened all the nuts. And now a subway train in motion suggests a prolonged dynamite explosion, blended with the voice of some great cataract. Smith, forced into temporary silence by this combination of noises, started to make up for lost time on arriving in the street once more. "'A thoroughly unpleasant neighborhood,' he said, critically surveying the dark streets. "'I fear me, Comrade Windsor, that we have been somewhat rash in venturing as far into the Middle West as this. If ever there was a blighted locality where low-browed desperados might be expected to spring with roops of joy from every corner, this blighted locality is that blighted locality. But we must carry on. In which direction, should you say, does this arena lie?' 
It had begun to rain as they left Billy's lodgings. Smith turned up the collar of his Burberry. "'We suffer much in the cause of literature,' he said. "'Let us inquire of this genial soul if he knows where the high field is.' The pedestrian referred to proved to be going there himself. They went on together, Smith courteously offering views on the weather and forecasts of the success of Kid Brady in the approaching contest. Rattling on, he was alluding to the prominent part Cozy Moments had played in the affair, when a rough thrust from Windsor's elbow brought home to him his indiscretion. He stopped suddenly, wishing he had not said as much. Their connection with that militant journal was not a thing even to be suggested to casual acquaintances, especially in such a particularly ill-lighted neighborhood as that through which they were now passing. Their companion, however, who seemed to be a man of small speech, made no comment. Smith deftly turned the conversation back to the subject of the weather, and was deep in a comparison of the respective climates of England and of the United States, when they turned a corner and found themselves opposite a gloomy, barn-like building, over the door of which it was just possible to decipher in the darkness the words Highfield Athletic and Gymnastic Club. The tickets which Billy Windsor had obtained from his newspaper friend were for one of the boxes. These proved to be sort of sheep pens of unpolished wood, each with four hard chairs in it. The interior of the Highfield Athletic and Gymnastic Club was severely free from anything in the shape of luxury and ornament. Along the four walls were raised benches and tiers. On these were seated as tough-looking a collection of citizens as one might wish to see. On chairs at the ringside were the reporters, with tickers at their sides, by means of which they tapped details of each round through to their different downtown offices, where write-up reporters were waiting to read off and elaborate the messages. In the center of the room, brilliantly lighted by half a dozen electric chandeliers, was the ring. There were preliminary bouts before the main event. A burly gentleman in shirt-sleeves entered the ring, followed by two slim youths in fighting costume, and a massive person in a red jersey, blue serge trousers, and yellow braces, who chewed gum with an abstracted air throughout the proceedings. The burly gentleman gave tongue in a voice that cleft the air like a cannonball. "'Exhibition four-round bat between Patsy Milligan and Tommy Goodley, members of this club. Patsy on my right, Tommy on my left.' "'Gentlemen, will kindly stop smoking.' The audience did nothing of the sort. Possibly they did not apply the description to themselves. Possibly they considered the appeal a mere formula. Somewhere in the background a gong sounded, and Patsy, from the right, stepped briskly forward to meet Tommy, approaching from the left. The contest was short but energetic. At intervals the combatants would cling affectionately to one another, and on these occasions the red-jerseyed man, still chewing gum and still wearing the same air of being lost in abstract thought, would split up the mass by the simple method of ploughing his way between the pair. Towards the end of the first round, Thomas, eluding a left swing, put Patrick neatly to the floor, where the latter remained for the necessary ten seconds. The remaining preliminaries proved disappointing. So much so that in the last of the series a soured sportsman on one of the benches near the roof began in a satirical mood to whistle The Merry Widow Waltz. It was here that the red jersey thinker, for the first and last time, came out of his meditative trance. He leaned over the ropes and spoke, without heat, but firmly. If that guy whistling back up yonder thinks he can do better than these boys, he can come right down into the ring. The whistling ceased. There was a distinct air of relief when the last preliminary was finished, and preparations for the main bout began. It did not commence at once. There were formalities to be gone through, introductions and the like. 
the burly gentleman reappeared from nowhere, ushering into the ring a sheepishly grinning youth in a flannel suit. "'Introducing young Leary,' he bellowed impressively, "'a new member of this club who will box some good boy here in September.' He walked to the other side of the ring and repeated the remark. A raucous welcome was accorded to the new member." Two other notable performers were introduced in a similar manner, and then the building became suddenly full of noise, for a tall youth in a bathrobe, attended by a little army of assistants, had entered the ring. One of the army carried a bright green bucket, on which were painted in white letters the words, Cyclone Owl Woman. A moment later there was another, though far lesser, uproar, as Kid Brady, his pleasant face wearing a self-conscious smirk, ducked under the ropes and sat down in the opposite corner. "'Exhibition ten-round bout!' thundered the burly gentleman. "'Between Cyclone Al Woolman!' Loud applause. Mr. Woolman was one of the famous, a fighter with a reputation from New York to San Francisco. He was generally considered the most likely man to give the hitherto invincible Jimmy Garvin a hard battle for the lightweight championship. "'Oh, you, Al!' roared the crowd. Mr. Woolman bowed benevolently. "'And Kid Brady, members of this—' there was noticeably less applause for the kid. He was an unknown. A few of those present had heard of his victories in the West, but those were but a small section of the crowd. When the faint applause had ceased, Smith rose to his feet. "'Oh, you kid!' he observed encouragingly. "'I should not like Comrade Brady,' he said, reseating himself, "'to think that he has no friend but his poor old mother, as, you will recollect, occurred on a previous occasion.' The burly gentleman, followed by the two armies of assistants, dropped down from the ring, and the gong sounded. Mr. Woman sprang from his corner as if somebody had touched a spring. He seemed to be of the opinion that if you are a cyclone, it is never too soon to begin behaving like one. He danced round the kid with an India-rubber agility. The cosy moments representative exhibited more stolidity. Except for the fact that he was in an fighting attitude, with one gloved hand moving slowly in the neighborhood of his stocky chest, and the other pawing the air in line with his square jaw, one would have said that he did not realize the position of affairs. He wore the friendly smile of the good-natured guest who was led forward by his hostess to join in some round game. Suddenly his opponent's long left shot out. The kid, who had been strolling forward, received it under the chin, and continued to stroll forward as if nothing of note had happened. He gave the impression of being aware that Mr. Woman had committed a breach of good taste, and of being resolved to pass it off with ready tact. The cyclone, having executed a backward leap, a forward leap, and a feint, landed heavily with both hands. The kid's genial smile did not even quiver, but he continued to move forward. His opponent's left flashed out again, but this time, instead of ignoring the matter, the kid replied with a heavy right swing, and Mr. Woman, leaping back, found himself against the ropes. By the time he had gotten out of that uncongenial position, two more of the kid's swings had found their mark. Mr. Woman, somewhat perturbed, scuttered out into the middle of the ring, the kid following in his self-contained, solid way. The cyclone now became still more cyclonic. He had a left arm that seemed to open out in joints like a telescope. Several times, when the kid appeared well out of distance, there was a thud as a brown glove ripped in over his guard and jerked his head back but always he kept boring in, delivering an occasional right to the body with the pleased smile of an infant destroying a Noah's Ark with a tack-hammer. Despite these efforts, however, he was plainly getting all the worst of it. Energetic Mr. Woman, relying on his long left, was putting in three blows to his one. When the gong sounded, ending the first round, the house was practically solid for the cyclone. 
Whoops and yells rose from everywhere. The building rang with shouts of, "'Oh, you, Al!' Smith turned sadly to Billy. "'It seems to me, Comrade Windsor,' he said, "'that this merry meeting looks like doing Comrade Brady no good. "'I should not be surprised at any moment "'to see his head bounce off onto the floor.' "'Wait,' said Billy. "'He'll win yet.' "'You think so?' "'Sure. He comes from Wyoming,' said Billy, with simple confidence. "'Rounds two and three were a repetition of round one. "'The cyclone raged almost unchecked about the ring.' In one lightning rally in the third he brought his right across squarely onto the kid's jaw. It was a blow which should have knocked any boxer out. The kid merely staggered slightly and returned to business, still smiling. "'See!' roared Billy enthusiastically in Smith's ear above the uproar. "'He doesn't mind it! He likes it! He comes from Wyoming!' With the opening of round four there came a subtle change. The cyclone's fury was expending itself. That long left shot out less sharply. Instead of being knocked back by it, the cozy moment's champion now took the hits in his stride and came shuffling in with his damaging body blows. There were cheers and, Oh, you owls! at the sound of the gong, but there was an appealing note in them this time. The gallant sportsman, whose connection with boxing was confined to watching other men fight and betting on what they considered a certainty, and who would have expired promptly if anyone had tapped them sharply on their well-filled waistcoats, were beginning to fear that they might lose their money after all. In the fifth round the thing became a certainty. Like the month of March, the cyclone, who had come in like a lion, was going out like a lamb. A slight decrease in the pleasantness of the kid's smile was noticeable. His expression began to resemble more nearly the gloomy importance of the cozy moment's photographs. Yells of agony from panic-stricken speculators around the ring began to smite the rafters. The cyclone, now but a gentle breeze, clutched repeatedly, hanging on like a leech till removed by the red jersey referee. Suddenly a grisly silence fell upon the house. It was broken by a cowboy yell from Billy Windsor. For the kid, battered but obviously content, was standing in the middle of the ring, while on the ropes the cyclone, drooping like a wet sock, was sliding slowly to the floor. "'Cozy moments wins,' said Smith. "'An omen, I fancy, Comrade Windsor.'" End of chapter 14 of Smith, Journalist by P. G. Boathouse